John chapter 1, verses 6 to 9 and 15 to 20. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came to be a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Word of God. Please be seated. Occasionally in history, in particular times of need, there have been voices that have cut through the confusion and been clearly heard. Voices that have altered the course of a nation's history. In 18th century England, slavery um, was a big part of the economy of England. It depended in no small measure on the practice of slavery to keep the economy going. And into this wilderness... William Wilberforce, a member of parliament, lobbied against the slave trade for decades, only to see it finally legally abolished shortly before his death. The southern United States in the 1950s and 60s was a place that was corroded by and marked by a deep-seated and vicious racism. Into this wilderness spoke a voice. Martin Luther King Jr., who proclaimed his dream of equality and who awakened with a jolt the conscience of an entire nation and led the charge to end legal segregation. Echoes of other voices in time are still heard by us today. Luther, Lincoln, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, voices that changed their nation, voices that changed the world. And history is now different because of these voices. And so we find ourselves now in 21st century North America in a civilization in which it seems that the right of self has become God. And we are, in the words of one writer, we are amusing ourselves to death. In a culture of pleasure and entertainment, we're spiraling into godlessness at breakneck speed, and into this wilderness speaks a voice, the church. The people of Jesus Christ, commissioned by God to be his messenger to this culture. To call people back to himself, to proclaim the coming of the Lord, and to testify concerning Jesus Christ. John the Baptist was a voice in the wilderness of his time, in his place. The Israel of John's day was led spiritually by those who worship God and yet whose worship was so dry and ritual that it had all but left God out of the picture entirely. People spoke easily of God, but their hearts were far from God. 
And John was called by God to be a servant in his culture to prepare people for the coming of Christ and for the establishing of the kingdom of God. I read one writer who said that John the Baptist is perhaps the most enigmatic figure of the New Testament. And I think it's fair to say that. There's a certain mystery that surrounds this person of John the Baptist. The Gospel of Luke records for us the supernatural events that surrounded his miracle birth. It records the incredible prophecies made about John. And then we hear nothing about John until he suddenly bursts onto the scene about 30 years later. A charismatic, wild man, full of spit and vinegar, we might say, clothed in camel's hair clothing, eating locusts and honey. What did you have for breakfast this morning? And he comes out of the wilderness proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling people to repentance, baptizing those who responded to his message, and there were many who did that. He vilified the religious establishment of the day. He called their leaders a brood of vipers, He challenged the Roman soldiers to end their practices of cruelty to the people. He called them to be different. He even rebuked the ruler of the country, Herod, for having for his own wife the wife of his brother, Philip. John was great. His influence among the people was great. And Josephus, a Jewish historian of the first century, tells us that John's influence was so great that Herod had him locked up because he feared that at one word from John, all the people would rise up in revolt. The angel Gabriel said in Luke chapter 1 that John would be great in the sight of the Lord. Jesus said that up to that point in history, there had risen none as great as John the Baptist. John was great. He was effective. He was respected. He was feared. He was listened to. And his voice in the wilderness was heard. The church of Jesus Christ in our time, however, does not seem to share John's success. We are not considered to be great. And though there's bright spots where some churches have very effective ministry, the decline of morality and faith in our culture speaks of a general ineffectiveness over many years of the church of Jesus Christ. And the church has lost its place in our culture. We are no longer the dominant voice that shapes our culture, and we no longer have the broad respect of the 300-plus million people that live in North America. So what has happened? In the 21st century, when our nation needs so desperately to hear the words that only the church can say, how can we once again speak in such a way as to be heard, to sound a clear call, and let the message be heard in our culture. I think that John the Baptist has some things to teach us in this regard. As we read his story in John chapter 1, and we read just a part of it today, but as we read his story, we notice some things. Things that translate directly from 1st century to 21st century. Canada and Calgary and in this neighborhood. And I want to just highlight some things today. There are many things, but I just want to highlight three of them. 
And the first thing about John is that he had a clear sense of his mission. He had a very clear sense of mission. John knew what he was about. He knew exactly what he had come to do. He knew exactly why he was here. John 1, verse 6, There came a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John was sent. He was commissioned. He had an agenda. He was absolutely single-minded in his purpose and in his ministry. And his ministry was to testify concerning Christ, to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. And so when people asked him about what he was doing and about who he was, he didn't hesitate to say, I am the voice of one crying in the desert, make, way the straight of the, uh, make straight the way of the Lord. And when in chapter 3, John's disciples came to him and said, John, everyone's going to Jesus now instead of you, John could say confidently, that's all right. He could rejoice in Jesus' success and feel no need to defend his own because he knew that he had not come to establish a successful ministry of his own. He had come to prepare the way for Christ's ministry. John could boldly confront the ruler of his nation with his sin because he knew that he'd come to prepare the way for the Lord, which involves calling people to repentance, including even the king, even Herod. John had been sent. And anything that didn't fit his mission, he discarded. Mountain climbers will often look to the peak and then work backwards to determine the route that they need to take. How to get to the top before they even start. Stephen Covey says that one of the habits of highly effective people is that they begin with the end in mind. And in business, it's common practice to formulate some kind of mission statement to articulate in words why a company or organization exists because unless they have a clear sense of who they are and what they're doing, they cannot succeed. Only those who have a clear sense of mission and keep it front and center can be sure of reaching their goal. So the question, do we know our mission as a church? We exist as a church to know Christ and make Christ known. That's what we have said, and I think it's right. That is our mission. And for us, that involves worship. It involves bringing the gospel to those who are not yet right with God. It includes discipleship and uh, teaching to train and strengthen our own faith in our church. It includes loving relationships with one another and so on. But all of these things are a part of our basic call to know Christ and then to make him known. And that means that in everything that we do, every decision, every expenditure of money, every ministry should be connected with a direct straight line to this mission. Anything that does not help us to know Christ or to make him known, we shouldn't do. So everything about Sunday school, hilltop kids, should be helping kids to know Christ and to make him known. Everything about youth, every life group, every ministry, you ask, are you not only getting to know Christ better in this ministry, 
But are you also learning to make him known to those who do not yet know him? And most of our programs in our church and most churches are designed to help us to know Christ better. But our outreach ministry and every other ministry should also be designed to help others know Christ as well. Praise teams, missions, deacons, choir, elders, all of this is a part of our church together helping make Christ known. All of you are a part of fulfilling our mission as a church. Even the trustees' role is to make sure that this building is an effective base from which we can do our ministry. There's nothing that is excluded from our mission. Now, unless we have a clear sense of mission, we will surely be distracted by things that are of secondary or lower priority. I think I've told you this before, a conversation I had some years ago with a gentleman talking about his church. And he had told me that attendance in his church was steadily declining. The church had become quite small. And then he said, I guess that if we're going to grow, we need to start reaching out. And my very first thought was they have totally lost sight of their mission. As though outreach was a means to swelling the numbers of the congregation in order that the institution of the church can stay around for a little while longer. And the surest way to tell whether or not we have a clear sense of the church's mission in our day is to simply ask this question here. What concerns you most about Thornhill Baptist Church? In these days, is it a particular ministry? Is it my preaching? Is it the number of people who have left us over the years? Is it our spiritual center and our level of effectiveness in knowing Christ and making Him known? What concerns you the most when you think about this church and when you feel about this church? What is it that you are thinking and feeling about? That's how we know if we're on mission or not. Questions like that. And when the church is elevated over the kingdom, then the church has lost sight of her mission. When the church of Jesus Christ has no clear sense of mission, we're ineffective. And so we wither. We get bent out of shape concerning something internal or else we stand at the sidelines shouting at a culture, ask them to start behaving like Christians even though they're not. Or we commit the opposite error and as somebody has put it, we lean forward so far so that we can speak into the culture that we fall in. Or we can be so fixated on Jesus and on why we exist that there's joy, that there's effectiveness, that there is a church that shines like a light beyond and a church that loves within. We get to take our pick. That's not true just of the church, but it's true of us as individuals. You and I, in our homes, in our communities, our workplaces, in our schools, we exist, I exist, to know Christ and to make him known. To you and elsewhere. John the Baptist had an absolutely clear sense of mission. But also then, too, John the Baptist was Christ-centered. His mission was all about Jesus. As I read about John, the thing that strikes me 
most forcefully about him is that he was unswervingly and uncompromisingly focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that he did was centered on Christ. I can talk about his mission, single-minded in his mission, but his mission was about Jesus. He was Christ-centered in every way. His, uh, his life was all about Christ. He existed for the sake of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 7, John came as a witness to testify concerning Christ. Verse 23, he came to prepare the way for Christ. We always see John pointing to Christ, directing the spotlight away from himself and directing it to Jesus. Verse 29, look, he says, the Lamb of God. Verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Verse 36, right away again, look, the Lamb of God. And again, that's why he could rejoice in Christ's popularity and not protect his own, because John knew that it wasn't about John. It was about Christ. It's always about Christ. The writer to the Hebrews said, let us fix our eyes, fix you fix something, it doesn't move. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And John's gospel records that even God the Father himself testifies about Jesus. That the scriptures testify about Jesus. That the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to testify about Jesus. That the mandate of the 12 disciples was to testify about Jesus. That's what John says. Because Christ is the central figure not just in Christianity, but in the whole history of heaven and earth. Listen, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Christ is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the redeemer of all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the Holy One of Israel. He is the living Word of God. He is the only Son of God. He is the spotless Lamb of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the captain of the army of God. He is God with us, Emmanuel. He is God over all, forever praise. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. He is the lion of Judah, the lily of the valley. He is the rose of Sharon, the bright and morning star. Jesus is the righteous judge, the great high priest, the mighty king. Jesus is the amen, the faithful and true witness. He is our rock, our fortress, our deliverer. He is the ancient of days and he is the head of his body, the church. He is our peace. He is our life. In him we live and move and have our being. He is pure, glorious, beautiful, majestic, perfect, infinite, good, strong, wise, loving, gentle, tender. He will forgive you, protect you, listen to you, challenge you, improve you, love you, help you. He will never forget you, forsake you, ignore you, fail you, or give up on you. He is the longing of every human heart. He is the subject of our greatest art and music. He is the object of our highest philosophy. He is our most noble pursuit. He cannot be defeated. He cannot be confined. He cannot be ignored. He is the friend of sinners, the healer of broken hearts. He gives hope to the hopeless, strength to the weary, joy to those in despair, peace to those in turmoil, comfort to the suffering, direction to the 
the aimless. He is an anchor in the turmoil, a shelter in the storm. Angels fear him. Angels serve him. Demons fear him. Millions revere him. He is a friend to sinner. He is Satan's worst nightmare. He did rule. He does rule. He will rule for eternity. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. His name is above every name. He is Christ the Lord. He's Jesus. He is the absolute center of who we are and of everything that we do. Napoleon said, Between Christ and whoever else in the world, there is no possible true comparison. He is truly a being by himself. Dostoevsky said, There is in the world only one figure of absolute beauty, Christ. Sundar Singh said, Christ is my Savior. He is my life. He is everything to me in heaven and on earth. And the hymn writers have said, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me. And I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. It is about Christ. It's before him that every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. It's all about Christ. And John knew that. John's life and his identity were wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, it's not about church. It's about Christ. It's not about a system of belief. It's about a person. And I wonder if part of the reason that the church in our day, in our culture, has a poor reputation is because we've often moved Christ to the perimeter, moved him away from the center, and made perhaps Christianity, the center, or have made God a sort of divine Santa Claus to whom we give our list, and he wraps it up and delivers. Or our church is a center, or our morality is a center, or the need to be culturally relevant is the center. But when Christ is the center, when he is elevated and made prominent, then our lives are changed. We can know him. When we're alone, we can worship. And when we're together in worship, we can engage with him in this place. And then there's unity because we love one another. Because we're the body of Christ, we belong to each other. And finally, John, clear sense of mission, absolutely Christ-centered, John was characterized by his humility. Humility. And this is part and parcel of being Christ-centered. It's the other side of the coin. When Christ is most important, then I am not. Okay, the two most important parts of Christian theology, there is a God and you're not him. And that's so easy to forget. How often do I decide that I am the most important player in my own life? I'm not. Christ is. And there are, of course, certain things that I strongly desire for myself, things that I entreat God for. And to not bring those things to God is frankly disobedient. But we realize that what we want and what I want are secondary. As at a workshop for preachers this week, and we gave ourselves to the study of the book of Philippians. And in this book, Paul is writing from prison. And he thinks that he will be set free, but he doesn't know for sure. It's possible that he faces his own execution. 
But in Philippians chapter 1, he writes about what he considers a win-win situation. It is my eager expectation, he says, and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then these immortal words, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's not about me, says Paul. And earlier in that chapter, Paul references some who are uh, preaching, taking advantage of Paul's being pulled out of the picture and put in prison. Now they're preaching, trying to make a name for themselves, maybe as ministers of the gospel. And Paul says of them, but whatever, ever, uh, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. It's not about me. It never was. In prison or free, I'm preaching. Somebody else is preaching. In life or death, as long as Christ is honored. That's what I'm concerned about. It's true of Paul. True of John. Even in the midst of his wildly successful ministry and incredible popularity and influence and power, you never hear John the Baptist say, boy, is God lucky to have a guy of my caliber. Caliber. On his team. No, what did John say? I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes, let alone serve him in the way that I do. So again, John could rejoice in Christ's growing influence without having a sense of needing to protect his own. And John, in his own picture, he considered himself a groomsman who delighted in the honor paid to the bride and the groom. And when the wedding is over and the marriage begins, the groomsman steps out of the picture. John chapter 3. John's disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, Jesus, well, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. And then John says, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends to the bridegroom just waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. And then he says, he must become greater. I must become less. That kind of humility is what allows us to serve God wholeheartedly and to put ourselves at the complete disposal of God. That in whatever way he wants, with us, in us, through us, through us, that he will elevate the name of Christ. That in us, Christ will be glorified ultimately for the glory of God, the Father. It's true of us individually. And I think that nobody has personified the spirit of humility in our time better than Mother Teresa, who prayed this. Dearest Lord, may I see you today and in every day in the person of your sick, and while, sorry, may I see you today and in every day in the person of your sick, and while nursing them, minister to you. And though you hide yourself behind the unattractive disguise of the irritable, the exacting, the unreasonable, may I still recognize you 
and say, Jesus, my patient, how sweet it is to serve you. Lord, give me the seeing faith. Then my work will never be monotonous. I will ever find joy in humoring the fancies and gratifying the wishes of all poor sufferers. Oh, beloved sick, how doubly dear you are to me when you personify Christ, and what a privilege is mine to be allowed to attend you. Sweetest Lord, make me appreciative of the dignity of my high vocation and its many responsibilities. Never permit me to disgrace it by giving way to coldness, unkindness, or impatience. Mother Teresa. The kind of humility is true of us, though, corporately, and it must be. It's what allows us to serve as his church and to not let anything else encroach on the territory that belongs exclusively to Christ. Church, programs, morality, we allow nothing to usurp his throne. And that kind of humility is what allows the church's mission to remain clear to remain unclouded. John had a clear sense of mission. Do you? Do I? Not always. And for me, in fact, maybe even seldom. Do we have a ch- as a church have a mission that is clear? Remain Christ-centered in your life. On Tuesday, on Saturday, on Sunday. A line should be traced from every facet of our church life and our own individual life to Christ. And I want to encourage and affirm and challenge us to make sure that that is always the case. And be characterized by humility. Again, personally willing to serve, not elevating ourselves, not making ourselves most important. It's not about me, it's not about our church. What's not about us? Everything. There's nothing that is about us. Everything is about Jesus Christ. It's not your church or mine. It's not my ministry. It's his. We live in a world where Jesus is being sent, relegated to the perimeter. And even many churches have relegated Jesus to the perimeter. All around us are people who ignore or reject Christ even though it's him that they most desperately need. Ours is a nation in crisis, and we don't even know it. And into this wilderness speaks the church. Called by God to be messengers to a culture, to testify concerning the light. Ours is a voice that cries to an oblivious world, prepare the way for the Lord, the kingdom of God is at hand. A clear sense of mission, absolutely Christ-centered in our focus, and with a humility that allows us full surrender of ourselves in all things, then we have credibility and love, and the world will be prepared to hear what we have to say once again. Can I say amen? Let's pray. Lord, we know that your love for us is infinite. It's immeasurable, and it seems sometimes as though all of the scriptures testify to your work and your reaching out to us, and it might almost make us feel that we are most important, even to you. But we know that your agenda, more than anything else, 
is to elevate the name of Christ. The redemption of your people and your work in our lives is the way by which you do that and the way by which you reveal Christ to the world around us. We are grateful for your love. And we know, you too, that the eternity with you provides us with an eternal opportunity to be Christ-centered forever and ever. But I pray that you would remind us and help us here on earth to practice what it means to worship you completely in our daily lives, in all that we do. You understand that we are weak. You don't beat us up when we fall and when we sin. We ask for grace and for reminders to fix our eyes upon you, to fix our thoughts upon you today and in the coming weeks and years and for our life. Thank you for John the Baptist and the example that he is and the picture that he is for us. And we thank you for his faithfulness to you and the encouragement that we draw from that. And we trust that you have spoken to us through your scripture today. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. I hope that that will stay fresh in your mind as you go from here. As you, as you step into this day and as you step into the week that lies ahead of you, that you will fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and exercise the humility that it takes to do that. And you will find joy and fullness as you do that. Keep Christ as a center. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.